This is 35 West, a podcast about politics and policy of the 35 countries in the Western Hemisphere. I'm Richard Miles, Senior Associate of the Americas Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Mexican but are we ready? I don't think. Reform trends in Argentina. Right. And that's what no happened. role at all in the NAFTA negotiation. In this podcast series, we'll discuss some of the biggest issues affecting countries in our own backyard. A little like a refugee, not just a Tom Petty song, but perhaps a description of U.S. refugee policy itself. The Trump administration is set to implement historically low refugee admission numbers, perhaps even zero. What will be the effects? Welcome to 35 West. I'm your host, Richard Miles, and today my guest is a fellow CSIS colleague, Errol Yabok, Deputy Director and Senior Fellow of the Project for Prosperity and Development. Welcome to the show, Errol. Thanks, Richard. Happy to be here. So, Errol, you've got a, a very interesting background. Uh, how long have you been at CSIS? I've been at CSIS uh, since early 2017. Okay. Before that, I dabbled in presidential politics, but, but more relevant to your audience, I have lived and worked in the developing world for most of my career, working on refugee, migration, and other sort of humanitarian international development contexts, uh, East Africa, Middle East, South Asia, and a little bit early in my career in Latin America. Right. I was looking at your CV. You've been in pretty much all the garden spots, right? Uh, Iraq, Iraq, Afghanistan. Syria, in, you, Syria as well? Or? Syria, never. Yeah. Uh, I've been at, uh, on the border on the Turkish side and on the Jordanian side and, and certainly cover it a lot in my work uh, these days. But no, never actually been to Syria. So that's a glaring omission in my uh, CV currently. So now you have a nice corner office in downtown D.C. Pretty soon you're going to have a car, driver security detail. So you're, you're a man on the move. Here. Uh, <laughs> I, I I don't think any of that's true, but uh, happy to... It's to, happy to dream. Right? Happy to dream. Have some dreams here. Yeah. Um, okay, let's, uh, we are talking about refugees today. Let's start with some definitions and maybe some history with respect to U.S. policy. What, legally speaking, is a refugee in the context of U.S. law uh, or U.S. policy? And what has U.S. policy been with respect to refugees over the course of our history. And I'm going to allow you to go back as far back as you'd like to. If you want to go back to the founding or concentrate on the last, say, 50 years, that's fine. So in 1430, no, I, <laughs> okay. I'm not going to go that far back. But if you're talking about U.S. policy and U.S. law and everything, I, it's hard to talk about that without talking about the international system. So in the business, we would call that the global architecture around uh, refugees. And, and really, that kicked off after World War II. Mm -hmm. So there was something called the 1951 Geneva Convention that established the term refugee, that established that there should be protections for people that are forced to flee their homes because of violence or persecution. Not everybody signed on to the 1951 convention, uh, including the U.S., and so fast forward to 1967, there was something called the 67 Protocol. I'm not going to bore your audience with all the ins and outs mm -hmm. of, of the differences between these, but there's a couple key things to note. So the U.S. did sign on to the 1967 Protocol and in doing so also accepted the principles that were uh, put forth in the 1951. So 51, 67, kind of the same, you know, they, they all move in the same direction. The U.S. has signed on to that. And so we have established that we agree that there are refugees that are forced to flee because of violence and persecution and therefore something should be done about it. 
The other thing, especially for, for the 35 West audience, that's really important to note is at the end of 1984 in Cartagena, Colombia, I think it was 10 Latin American countries came together and signed on to a, something called the Cartagena Declaration, which expanded the definition of what it means to be a refugee or qualify for refugee assistance. And this was based on you know, the challenges that people were facing coming out of World War II were maybe not the mm -hmm. same challenges that were coming out of the narco wars of the early 80s or the proxy uh, wars of, of the Cold War that were happening in Central America, for example. And so this broadened the definition to include things like generalized violence and the, the one that is most relevant to places like Venezuela right now is I think they called it disturbances to the public order. So this is a broadening of the definition. 14 Latin American countries subsequently instituted those policies into their own legal structures. And so why that's important is because whether you're talking about 51, 67, or 84 Cartagena, these are documents. They're documents that exist in the international architecture, but they're essentially toothless until countries actually incorporate mm -hmm. them into their law, right? So your question was about the U.S. The U.S. is signed on to the 67 protocol, and we have, up until a couple of years ago, really been leaders in not only providing assistance through groups like the U.N. Refugee Agency, uh, UNHCR, you know, we still to this day provide, I think, the largest single contribution to UNHCR. So we're not only helping refugees in their countries of first arrival, uh, we have been leaders in resettlement. And I think what kicked off this, uh, you know, in your introduction and what I've been really passionate about recently is the fact that the U.S. is considering lowering those refugee resettlement numbers, which, as I wrote last week, I think would be a, a grave mistake. Thank you. That was a, it was a very good, concise history. Let's drill down a little bit on sort of the, the political understanding, I guess, in the United States of refugees. And again, making distinction between refugees and immigrants, because we're not talking about immigrants who are trying to get to the United States in most cases for work or other reasons. We're talking about people who are basically fleeing a war or, or a natural disaster and so on. And it strikes me that there are, there are two examples that are, are very different in the post-war history. One is after the fall of Vietnam and Cambodia. Um, in the mid-70s, you had massive amounts of Vietnamese refugees and Cambodian. And I was a kid at the time, but I seem to remember there was a strong consensus that that was the right thing to do. I mean, there's some logistical hurdles, but by and large, the refugee admissions of Vietnamese and Cambodians and Laotians did not uh, really present a political challenge. I think Fast it, pres it, it, pres it. it yeah, it presented a bigger challenge than than I think you think really? at the time okay. because that if you look at U.S. refugee policy, sure we had signed mm -hmm. on to sixty seven, right? But when the Vietnamese boat people right. started coming, there were some real big apprehensions, and some of the language that was used by politicians back in those days is not dissimilar from some of the language that you see uh, being talked about vis-a-vis -vis immigrants and other so refugees. She shows you what a 12-year-old knows. <laughs> well, it's, I, I think it's great that you right. had that impression, but from a policy yeah. a, a sort of historical perspective, it was not easy at first. And 
I think we'll get to this in a little right. bit, but I think one of the things that's important in changing that narrative was that the Vietnamese that came in the yeah. 1970s integrated extremely well into communities in Southern California and other places uh, around the United States. And I think people realized that not only were they providing assistance and resettlement mm -hmm. to people that needed it, but these people were actually having a tangible positive benefit on the communities to which they were. So integrated. the other example I was going to use was Syria, right? In right. which uh, it seemed uh, from the outset there was a widespread political opposition, um, and that kind of went nowhere in effect, or not nowhere, but it stopped pretty early. But it strikes me as two two different, or at least not similar reactions in terms of one where at least the Vietnamese are sort of given a chance to assimilate, and then people changed their minds. In Syrian, it was stopped outright. Do you think that it exhibits a, a shift overall in the general American understanding of what America's responsibility is to wartime refugees, or is that the result of simply policy choices? I think that you're asking some really tough, almost existential questions, and I'm going to try to tiptoe through the minefield that involves race and religion mm -hmm. and some of the other things that I think a lot of people make credible arguments, in my opinion, are involved in, in that shift. I think that the U.S. looks different than it did in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. I think that it's a much more diverse place to live. I, I think that it's our sense of what it means to be part of the international community and, and a leader in the international community is being challenged. And it's not just being challenged by the Trump administration in Washington. It's being challenged by people outside of Washington. And, and I think that to a certain degree, the refugee population, which it's worth mentioning, only 1% of refugees globally actually get resettled. So we're talking about over 20 million, I think the number is 23 million forcibly displaced refugees, meaning they've crossed over to another country. And we're talking global refugee resettlement numbers are in the low hundreds of thousands. And even at its peak, in the Obama administration, we're talking about resettlement numbers to the U.S. that were less than 100,000. So your audience is smart enough, I think, to know the difference between 23 million and 90-some-odd right. thousand. And so I think that there's something larger, to get back to your question, mm -hmm. I think there's something larger at play here that's not just an image of Syrians coming in and overwhelming communities, because that was never... That was never going to happen. The numbers were not big enough to overwhelm. And in places like Detroit and Minneapolis and some other places around the country, there are leaders, local leaders, mayors, business leaders who are saying, send us those people because those people are actually great workers and they are a boon to our community over time. So that segues into my next question. If you're going to lay out the best sort of national interests reasons, both domestically, as you just mentioned, maybe even a workforce reason, and then also internationally, sort of what this does for the United States overseas. What what are the strongest arguments out there to have a, a either generous or at least a traditional refugee admission uh, policy? It's a great question. And I will break it up into sort of domestic policy and then foreign policy. Mm -hmm. But before I do, I, I, there's three big things that I think your audience needs to take away about this resettlement piece. The first is there is and there has always been a strong moral case for why the U.S. should be a global leader on resettlement. I mean, more people than ever 
are in need of assistance. Mm-hmm. And the United States has has long been the sort of shining torchlight of hope for the world's tired, poor, and huddled masses. And and right now we're we're all but signaling that the door is closed. From a moral perspective, which I like to start off with because it's my own personal belief, but also I think it's, we have signaled moral leadership mm-hmm. in a way that has benefited us. The second thing is that refugees especially are are the most extremely well-vetted people that come into the United States. They're often conflated with immigrants and, and people that come on work visas and student visas. No comparison. These are people that are extremely, extremely well-vetted by several layers, both when they arrive in a refugee camp or a place like Amman, that's where it starts. And it comes all the way down to when they are are arriving in the U.S. So a really important point. The third important point, and then I promise I'll I'll answer your question, is that the refugee resettlement program has always had broad bipartisan support. And I think that's really, really critical to point out here. And the reason that it's had broad bipartisan support is the answer to your question. The first is that from a domestic point of view, and we talked about this when we talked about the Vietnamese, from a domestic point of view, there's tons of evidence about there about the contributions to the communities that refugees have made over the years. In my article titled, Cutting Refugee Resettlement Would Be a Strategic Mistake, that came out on September 9th, I point out that in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, I mean, you can go to almost any state, there are actual academic studies that have been done that show, that prove this point. This is not a rhetorical point. This has actually been a proven point that they are a boon to these communities, economically and socially. So there's a strong domestic policy argument to be made. From a foreign policy perspective, there's two critical things that your listeners should know. One is that we are trying to get countries like Kenya and Jordan and Uganda and other places to make commitments to protect vulnerable people like Syrians or South Sudanese or Congolese or whatever, more close to home here. We're trying to get Mexico to make commitments to protect people coming up from Central America. But at the same time, what has convinced those countries to be better towards the people, to provide support, to to provide protections, and in some cases, yes, refugee camps. To make that argument to them, we've had to keep those streams of resettlement open, right? So if we close Mm -hmm. those resettlement streams, what's stopping the Kenyans or the Jordanians or the Mexicans from saying, well, I guess, you know, we're we're not going to do anything to help these people anymore. Uh, And so we have used that as a foreign policy lever. The second point is that the Trump administration talks a lot about burden sharing, I don't really like to talk about people in terms of burdens, but let's just use that construct for a second. So if the idea is that the U.S. is going to lessen the number of people that we're taking and in doing so, other countries will resettle more, that's actually not happening. In fact, what you see is a race to the bottom. Historic levels of forcibly displaced people Mm -hmm. uh, all around the world and led by the U.S., there is a race to the bottom to see who can take in the fewest number of refugees. There are some outliers, Canada being one of them, that they have increased. But in general, there are 20-something countries. I think there's 27 resettlement countries out there. And there has been a general trend towards taking fewer since the U.S. has lowered the resettlement. 
So let's fast forward now to what the Trump administration policy um, has been or is uh, going to be, and that is basically several things going on, right? One, not only lowering the amount of the number uh, down to historically low levels, right, to 95,000 or some such, or even down to zero. Well, it's it's between zero and 15,000. Between zero and 15,000. Okay, so very, very low, certainly compared to what we've uh, seen in the last few years. But at the same time, uh, a decision that was recently upheld by the Supreme Court, and that is basically Basically, if a potential refugee moves to another country, a third country, um, they have to apply for asylum there first. And then if they're rejected, then there's still a shot at getting into the United States. But sort of the the first stop is always the country that you pass through. And it strikes me that, that part of what is going on, it used to be so much easier, right, during the Cold War to determine what a political refugee or what persecution was. Because if they're fleeing the Soviet Union or fleeing Cuba or fleeing some sort of dictator, then it was pretty clear cut. Now you've basically got a mix, right? Because you have these terrible levels of violence in Central America. You've got real persecution going on in various groups. But at the same time, you have miserable economic conditions that are also drivers of immigration. Uh, And it seems there's a bit of cynicism that's set in at some policymakers like, well, how do we know? How do we know that this person is truly being persecuted so on? So, Errol, why don't you walk us through what exactly is on the table or, or what is being implemented as we speak? Yeah. And then how is that going to affect those third countries? In this case, I'm primarily talking about Mexico, mm-hmm. but other countries in which uh, large migrant streams are passing through on the way in an attempt to get in the United States? Yeah, I think it's an excellent question. And uh, Mexico is at the front lines of this. I mean, I've spent a lot of time today talking about, you know, other places in the world. Mexico is going to be at the front lines of these policy changes. And spoiler alert, they're not ready. (laughs) But they're trying to pretend like they are, right? It seems like for wanting to get along with the United States, the Mexicans are saying it's fine, working great, no problem here. They right. don't want to get on the bad side of the administration, if or am I interpreting? That no, I think that's a proper interpretation. Yeah. And, and I was in southern Mexico yeah. earlier this year looking at some of these things. And so let me make a couple broad points mm-hmm. and then come back to this, because I think this is the crux of, of the issue here. The first is that the international system, the international architecture has for a long time had this sort of bucketing system. So if I'm leaving my home... Am I an economic migrant? Am I forced to leave home? Am I some variation thereof? And we spend a lot of time and energy and blood, sweat, and tears trying to figure out what label to put on people. And I think the reason that I bring that up is because especially in the case of Central Americans, it's not a a multiple choice select one option. It's a multiple choice pick all that apply because you've got for example, climate change is is at the root of a lot of the sort of crop failures and other economic hardships that are happening in Central America that are leading to people leaving their homes. And so if you ask a migrante from Honduras or something like that, sure, he or she may say, I have come in search of a better life. But if you peel back that onion just a couple of layers, it's maybe because they live in a poor area that doesn't Mm -hmm offer the women in the community the protections that they need from gender-based violence. You know, maybe there's actually food insecurity issues at the heart of this. They are absolutely in pursuit of a better life, but have they been forced from home? Well, I'd argue in a lot of cases, yeah. 
Now, that doesn't automatically qualify them for refugee assistance or, or asylum status, but it is something that is way more complicated than this global architecture makes it out to be. So I, that's a broad point that I think mm -hmm. it's, it's important that people know. And I'm glad that you brought up not only resettlement, which we've talked about, and I won't go much further on that. This asylum case that you brought up is a really important one. And so... What the administration is saying and what the Supreme Court has basically allowed them to say is that we, the United States, are not going to accept a Salvadorian or a Guatemalan traveling through Mexico and claiming asylum in the U.S. They have to do it in their country of first asylum. Now, let's all agree that someone who is arriving in Guatemala from El Salvador, they're not going to claim asylum in Guatemala. Right. So let's just assume that they're really meaning Mexico. The issue with that is that if you look at Mexico's history and Richard, you know this better than anybody in town. If you look at Mexico's history, it is one of historical emigration, people leaving Mexico, mostly coming north. And so you've got a policy architecture in Mexico that is set up for people leaving to have a robust enough system to accept asylum seekers and other people that are coming in and are going to stay longer in Mexico. Oh, by the way, in places like Chiapas that are some of the most underdeveloped parts of Mexico, that's a whole different ballgame. And I think the the government in Mexico is doing signaling north saying, you know, hey, guys, we're OK. We want to have good relations with our neighbors to the north. But if you look practically, the parts of the Mexican government that are going to be required to actually process those people and process those claims are nascent. I mean, they're really, really underdeveloped. The capacities are low. The budgets are not there. So they don't have people to be able to process these claims. And so what's going to happen to these people? Are they going to stay in Chiapas for months and months, maybe even years where there's no economic opportunities for them? They become more of a quote unquote burden on society. Or are they just going to move irregularly north anyways? And we've created a different problem by trying to address one non-problem, in Errol's opinion. The asylum thing, numbers-wise, is not that big of a deal. By addressing that non-problem, you have created this other problem of basically a pull factor for people to move irregularly that would have moved through more regular means, i.e. the asylum process. Errol, let's talk about uh, solutions here. I mean, uh, one of the, you know, of course, at anything tank wreck, we, we love to dwell on the problems because they're, so they're so much easier to describe and yes. analyze. But solutions are always kind of the tricky part, right? Knowing that whether you're talking about immigration or you're talking about refugee resettlement or asylum, the, the drivers are huge and, and they're really difficult to solve, right? I mean, as long as you've got, say, a significant income gap between two countries yep. or poverty or violence, you're just going to get attempts to move from a bad place to a good place. It's just the way it's always been. So given all that, we know that there are no sort of easy solutions. Are there yet legislative fixes or legislative proposals that could in some way either provide clear signals to both potential seekers of asylum or refugee status or even immigrants um, and also clear mandates and instructions to the executive agency on how to actually enforce all these distinctions and so on. Because it seems like what we've seen over the last year is in, in many senses, we had an outdated 
framework or mm-hmm. outdated paradigm in which we're still thinking, you know, Soviet dissidents, uh, you know, slipping across the, the, right. the uh, from East Berlin into West Berlin, and of course they're welcome, right? And and that's not the world we live in anymore. Are there good ideas out there of like, look, here's here's a legislative package that we think could address some of these problems. Apart from, as we know, you know, look, Central America needs to be a better place to live economically, et cetera, et cetera. But at, at the U.S. policy level, is there anything out there that you think has a shot? I think that I am not an immigration expert, mm-hmm. meaning uh, I'm not an expert in U.S. policy towards people arriving in the U.S. I care about resettlement and I have learned about it because I don't consider that necessarily part of the U.S. immigration mm-hmm. system. I think that for reasons that I've outlined before, I think that there are foreign and domestic policy reasons why we should be doing more resettlement, not less. You know, the the comprehensive immigration reform, if you want to use that term, tends to be a really emotional, politically charged mm-hmm. one. I think that there are some good solutions there. I'm Like I said, I'm, I don't think it's necessarily relevant for me to go into that. However, I think that there's a lot that Congress can do. And I think what Congress can do is try to make sure that we have consistent and longer term dedication to resolving some of the root causes in places like Central America. You mentioned that it's hard to address root causes of migration, and I think that that is absolutely true. Does that mean that we shouldn't be doing it? No. And I think that there's a lot of things that can be done. Your your colleague in the Americas program, Mark Schneider, has done some really excellent work on what some of the USAID work in Central America the impact of that work on not only migration, but sort of the governance and stability in in those places. I think that the reality is when you have a poor country, let's say two, three thousand dollars per capita GDP, you're going to as countries develop and stabilize, you're probably going to see increases in migration. That's what the data suggests. There's a guy named Michael Clemens over at the Center for Global Development that's done some really excellent research into this that shows that in the short term, economic development actually leads to more people having disposable income Mm -hmm. and therefore leaving. Leaving, I think the, the case of Mexico is illustrative, right? Because that was also the case in Mexico. But then at some point in the mid 2000s, mm-hmm. you had kind of a reverse there. Mm-hmm. And so some people like to point to the fact that Mexico made it up to $8,000 per capita GDP. Some people like to point to a lower birth rate. Some people like to point to lower levels of violence. And I think that all of that's probably true. And so the the message that I receive is that we should be doing everything we can in Central America to help them get on a path like Mexico was in the 1990s or like Colombia was in the 1990s. And now Colombia is now, I don't know if they're officially acceded to the OECD, but they're sort of on the way way to, Mm -hmm. to doing that, which was unfathomable in the 1990s. And so how do we do that? Well, I think Congress can play a role there. Congress holds the power of the purse, and I think that they can be directive to a certain point, and they can allocate resources towards places like the Northern Triangle and try to hold the administration accountable to actually spending that money. I think from the from the asylum and resettlement perspective, those are have historically been executive branch decisions. And so what you have there is you have limited 
direct power of Congress, but Congress can certainly make it hard for the administration to do things like lower the resettlement numbers and you know the asylum policy. They just have to choose that as the battle that they want to fight. Right. No, very good. And I, I, I can't really disagree with much there. I think Mexico is a really interesting example, as you know, because we did have these historically huge numbers of immigration yep. uh, up into the millions in the in the late 90s and early 2000s. And that's basically turned around and we're having negative immigration now in terms of more Mexicans are returning than coming. And I think a lot of that is because of the success of NAFTA also falling birth rates, et cetera. But it seems to me that both parties owed the American people to sort of frame this as either we help other countries around the world get better through trade and aid and everything else, or we better you know, build a lot higher walls and have a much tougher way to get in because more people are going to want to get in to the United States if, if that gap uh, widens. And clearly, in cases like Mexico, you can narrow that gap. I mean, the wages don't have to be one-to-one. They don't even have to be two-to-one, right? Yeah. It can be 10-to-one, but it can't be 20-to-one or 30-to-one indefinitely because people are going to move. And I, you mentioned two options. I mean, the second option of sort of this wall strategy, yeah. I, I think, is – is also proving to be not realistic. Yeah. I recently published a, a paper on irregular migration, mm-hmm. and one of my arguments was desperate people are going to move through desperate channels, even if that is a traficante, mm-hmm. even if that's a coyote, even if that's maybe a network that we, the U.S., from a national security perspective, should not be backwards incentivizing yeah. the development of. It's sort of a shoot ourselves in the foot strategy to have a let's do less there and build higher walls here because it doesn't work and it actually makes just thing makes things there and here more insecure. All right. Errol, I'm afraid we're probably not going to solve this problem uh, in, in one podcast session. Maybe two or three. We'll have it all figured out. Happy to come back. Um, and, and I'd like to have you back on the show at some point. We can talk about these issues and, and see where we are. Uh, but thanks very much for joining me today on 35 West. Thanks, Richard. Thank you for listening to 35 West. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast and visit the America's Program page at csis.org.